There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Sometimes even the most bizarrely different cases can be connected. On October 21st, 2005, one half of a killer duo died in prison for crimes committed that, though incredibly different, seemed to have one very solid connection. The presence of his partner. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Alvin Howard Neely Jr. was born on July 15, 1953 in Georgia, where from the time he was just 18, he became known to the police for his frequent car theft. While still married to his first wife, Alvin, 26 at the time, met 15-year-old Judith Ann Adams, a woman who, shortly after his divorce was finalized, would become his second wife. Judith Ann Neely, born June 7, 1964, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, spent her adolescence being raised by an alcoholic father who passed away when she was just nine years old after a motorcycle accident. After meeting Alvin, she herself began her own life of crime and traveled cross-country, even while pregnant, to commit a series of armed robberies. Sleeping in their car and the occasional motel room, the pair lived on the run, supported themselves by stealing, and began forging checks along the way. She was eventually caught and, while serving time at Rome, Georgia's Youth Development Center, gave birth to a set of twins. Eventually, both were released from their respective holdings and, after reuniting, Alvin and Judith decided that they wanted to take things a step further. On September 25th, 1982, a young girl named Lisa Ann Milliken, born March 18th, 1969, went to Rome's Riverbend Mall with fellow residents from the Ethel Harpst Home, a facility for neglected and abused young people. The 13-year-old separated from her group and made her way to the mall's arcade. That's where the Neelys found her and, dubbing her the target, lured Lisa out of the gaming area and into their car. She was then taken to a motel room in Scottsboro, Alabama, where she would be held captive and raped by both Alvin and Judith for the next three days. During that time, Judith injected Lisa multiple times in multiple locations on her body with Drano and liquid plumber. And when the poisoning did not work, the young girl was shot in the head execution style on September 28th, 1982. Her body was then thrown off a cliff in the Little River Canyon in Fort Payne, Alabama. Now, shortly after Lisa's disappearance, a search began for the young girl that, understandably, focused in the Georgia area where she was last seen. While the effort turned up nothing of worth, a call came into the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office in Fort Payne from an unidentified woman, giving detailed directions to the location of a, quote, young girl's body. This same caller, who turned out to be Judith Neely herself, called various police agencies on several occasions and eventually led them straight to the canyon floor where Lisa Ann Milliken's body was found draped over a fallen tree. Had the calls not been made, it would have likely taken years for police to find her beneath the 80-foot drop that's often used as a garbage dump by the locals. Lisa, who, in the span of her short life, had been removed from her home following sexual abuse allegations, 
had hopped from foster home to foster home and had grown so angry that she often resorted to violence, had been heartlessly abandoned amongst the trash before she ever had the chance to turn her life around. Now desperate to find out who ripped Lisa's life away, an investigator leading the case, Detective Sergeant Kenneth Kynes, latched on to one of those many phone calls and decided to play the tape for a 13-year-old girl who, on October 4th, just a few days after Lisa disappeared, had been approached by a woman in a brown car and offered a ride. Though she thankfully did not get in, he played her the recorded call and, passing by the room at that exact second, was a young man named John Hancock, who suddenly stopped short and said, that's the damn woman that shot me. You see, just a few days after Lisa Ann Milliken was abducted, and on the same day that the other girl had her near miss, John Hancock and his fiancée, 22-year-old Janice K. Chapman, were abducted by the woman he heard talking on that recorded call. He said that he and Janice were out walking that night when they accepted a ride from a woman in a brown Dodge. The unknown woman said that she was lonely and just wanted to talk, but at some point during the drive, she made contact with a man called Night Rider on her CB radio. Referring to herself as Lady Sundown, they eventually made their way down a dirt road just north of Rome and were joined by a red car with two children in the back. John was then told to switch cars and ride with the man, leaving Janice alone with Lady Sundown. Feeling a little uneasy about the situation, John did as he was told and watched as they began driving into Alabama and then back. They then stopped for a second time and told John to walk down the road away from the cars. As he did, he heard a loud bang and felt a searing pain in his back. As he crumbled to the ground, wounded by Lady Sundown's bullet, he listened as they drove off with Janice in their car. She was never seen again, and it was later learned that she would suffer a similar fate as Lisa Milliken. Though his story seemed far-fetched to police when he initially told it, when he identified the voice on the call as belonging to Lady Sundown, things were taken a little more seriously, and all the details he could remember were written down and added to the active investigation. Then came the call from Bill Whitner of the Floyd County Sheriff's Department, who told Kenneth Kynes that his agency, like the others, had been flooded with anonymous calls from a female. His case, however, involved a firebombing and a shooting. On September 11th, 1982, just weeks before Lisa's abduction, Ken Dooley, a youth development center employee, was shot four times inside of his home. He survived, but the following day, another employee, Linda Adair, had a Molotov cocktail thrown into her driveway. No one was injured, but while the police were there investigating the incident, Linda got a call from an anonymous female who referred to the shooting at Ken's home and said, quote, you both will die before the night's over. A second call came into the sheriff's office a bit later, stating, quote, for the abuse I took, they are going to die. Listening to the story, Kenneth Kynes was struck by the connection between this case and the one that he was working. Realizing that the Youth Development Center was a juvenile facility like the one Lisa Milliken was in, he worked under the suspicion that all the bizarre cases and phone calls were connected by the same individual. Remembering John Hancock's claims that his abductor's cars had out-of-state plates, 
he asked a juvenile officer for a list of all the girls who had been in the youth development center from out of state. He had a list of 25 names and after some investigating, had dwindled it down to just one, Judith Ann Neely. Assembling a photo lineup, he showed the photos to both John Hancock and the 13-year-old girl who managed to not get into that brown car. While John could not be sure if Lady Sundown and Judith were one and the same, the girl recognized her immediately and gave police the positive ID that they needed. All attention went to the search for Judith Neely, and in a strange stroke of luck, the woman that they wanted was arrested on October 9th, 1982 at a Murfreesboro hotel for passing bad checks. Alvin was arrested a few days later, and on October 14th, Kenneth Kynes got word that his suspect was in custody. Pretty much immediately after arriving in Tennessee, Alvin waived his rights to remain silent and gave a lengthy and very detailed statement about their crimes, as well as naming Judith, his beloved wife, as the mastermind and sexual deviant. He claimed that it was she who planned the entire thing, including the firebombing and the shooting, and called her a, quote, dangerous person. He then drew a map that would lead police straight to Janice Chapman's body and swore up and down that Judith forced him to participate in the sexual abuse of both her and Lisa Milliken. Judith, just down the hall, was making a similar confession and admitted to committing the firebombing and shooting because, she claimed, Linda Adair forced her to have sex with Ken Dooley during her time in the Youth Development Center and said that she was part of a prostitution ring operating within the facility. These claims were later disproven. She also confessed in chilling detail to the crimes against Lisa and Janice. She claimed that while abducting Lisa and keeping her for a few days, she worried that if she released her, they would both be placed back in the development center. Not wanting that for either of them, that's when she claimed she decided to take Lisa's life. While she continued confessing, police took the map given to them by Alvin and went searching for Janice's body, while others went to Judith's mother's home, where the couple had been staying, to search for additional evidence. Finding plenty, things like handcuffs, CB radios, guns, and knives, Alvin decided to plead guilty to murder and aggravated assault in an attempt to avoid the death penalty. He was sentenced to life in prison and stayed behind bars until his death on October 21st, 2005. Judith Neely's trial began in March of 1983, but before the start date, she gave birth to her third child behind bars. The trial itself lasted about six weeks, and in the end, she was convicted of the torture murder of Lisa Ann Milliken. And though the jury did recommend life in prison, the judge sentenced the 18-year-old to death for her crimes. She later pleaded guilty to Janice Chapman's murder and, when placed on death row, was the youngest woman ever sentenced to death in the U.S. After appealing for a new trial and being denied, on January 15, 1999, just days before her intended execution, Governor Fob James commuted her sentence to life in prison with a possibility for parole after 15 years. She was eligible in January of 2014, but a law passed in 2003 made her ineligible. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to a terrible thing happened on October 22nd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon. 
or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.